Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. Call Baby That's Really Me by John Otway. Read by John Otway. Call Baby That's Really Me. Chapter 24 Otway now looked on America as the way destiny had in mind for him to achieve international stardom. And Britain was merely the place where he had to serve his apprenticeship. Morris was sent on a reconnaissance mission to New York to prepare the continent for the forthcoming invasion. In many ways, it was a good time to try this venture. The Americans were just beginning to show an interest in the new wave music coming out of Britain, and Freddie Lager had drastically cut the cost of travelling the Atlantic. Dire Straits, an English pub band, had just become huge stars over there, and bands like The Police and Squeeze looked like doing the same thing. Luckily, John's booking agencies were the English agents for The Police, and through them, Morris met Ian Copeland, their American agent. He was interested enough to offer to get John a few dates should he decide to come over. He was also able to sort out the correct visas and work permits. On his short mission, Morris had done well and came back with the exciting news that a short but extensive tour of America had been pencilled in. The tour would cover both the East and West Coasts, a couple of days in the Midwest and two dates in Canada. Unlike Otway, Polydor did not see America as the place where they were likely to recoup the huge losses they already had made on him and his records. Releasing records in America is an expensive business, they said. There's been no demand for John's records on import from the States, and so we see no reason to incur further losses on either supporting a tour or issuing product in that territory. Ah, but once we do a few dates, and they realise that I'm big news over there, they won't be able to get records out quick enough, John told Morris. Although Morris could usually control John's spending, there were times when he was adamant and stubborn, if it meant getting back on the treadmill of debts and overdrafts in order to achieve some goal, then so be it. His motto was, If I have to borrow thousands of pounds in order to make it in America, then these can easily be paid back from the mountain of dollars I'll earn. And so Morris was pushed into sorting out this tour. All he could do, faced with this determination, was to do it as cheaply as possible and to keep borrowing down to a minimum. John was very excited about the prospect of going to America, Jeff Potter remembers. He would run around the front room of his flat, making aeroplane noises followed by a yell of, Hello, America! For obvious monetary reasons, Otway was back working as a duo again in the US, this time with Ollie Holsall on guitar. John and Ollie did a few shows to warm up this lineup, including a couple at John's old haunt, The Oranges and Lemons, in Oxford. They also did an extraordinary thing. They got together and wrote some songs. For a while it was a very productive partnership and in the short period of time between the last tour and going to the States, John and Ollie wrote a lot of material including Cry Cry, 21 Days, Body Talk, When Love's in Bloom and Day After Day. Cry Cry was yet another song about the suffering that our hero went through as a struggling, sensitive artist. Pain and sorrow, sadness and tears, 
I've been suffering all these years. Staying alive is killing me with heartache, sickness and misery, doom, disaster and tragedy. This gives some idea of what it felt like having to wait for another hit. Day After Day, however, is a lovely song. One of those rare occasions where John could write sensitively about his deeply personal feelings. They say that it's colder in northern Alaska and that it's hotter down by the equator. I've had these hot and cold feelings in my bones day after day. Waking up, the same situations, the same things to say. The same conversations I had as I started chasing, you kept on running away. It was one of the few things I ever wrote that people would always harp on about and ask, why don't you write more songs like that? The Otway entourage consisted of John, Kathy, Ollie and John Rummins, a friend of Kathy's from art school days. Otway liked him, he was diplomatic, charming and had the ability to talk his way out of awkward situations. He had lived in Texas for a number of years while on a postgraduate course and had some idea of what Americans were like. He was just the sort of person Otway needed to smooth the way through the ultra-low budget tour planned for him. He was hired as tour manager. Morris flew out a few days early to organise what press and promotion he could and was due to meet them in New York. Cheap Atlantic flights in those later days were strange affairs as a price-cutting war was going on between the companies. Morris had worked out the cheapest possible way to take advantage of this war and had given Rummins the job of putting this into effect. It was very unstar-like. Basically, it entailed phoning all the major airlines to find out if there were likely to be any standby seats available, and if there were, queuing at the airline office from about four in the morning. If you were lucky, you would get seats for that day's flights. A lot of people were taking advantage of these new cheap flights, and the queues were always long. However, few of these people were about to embark on a tour with amplifiers, guitars, flight cases of equipment, records and merchandising, as well as luggage. Imagine the horror of the poor girls on the standby desks, used to passengers with one suitcase and ready to travel immediately, watching the four trolley loads of rock and roll gear edging slowly but inexorably towards them. There seemed to be a lot of, how many tickets do you need? Four? Oh, what a shame. We just have three for this flight, John remembers. Romans learnt the trick that free LPs and T-shirts could smooth the way through a lot of travel problems. You might not have heard of John Otway, but your daughter will have. Do you want John to sign the album for her, he would say, and it would ease the situation considerably. Even with this smoothing, it still took four days of getting up at 4am and getting disappointed after eight hours of queuing before the star took off from Heathrow and headed for Washington, D.C. But isn't Morris supposed to be meeting us in New York? John asked. Shut up, said Rummins. Morris was indeed supposed to meet them in New York. He had even organised some American girls with banners to greet them at Kennedy Airport. Even though Washington was several hundred miles from both New York and the welcoming party, and no transport had been organised between the two, Otway was happy. Washington was the first place where Otway genuinely raised his arms in the air in the manner he had rehearsed so often in his flat and yelled, Hello, America! In the arrivals lounge of Washington International Airport, 
Ollie was not amused. He was a guitarist of considerable status, who had in the past done several proper American tours. He was used to going to the White Airport and being met by a representative of the record company who would then organise his transport to his hotel where he could recover from his jet lag. He was not used to being asked if he could keep an eye on the gear for an hour or so while we go and see if we can get a car. Robbins eventually hired a station wagon that could carry themselves and the equipment as long as John and Ollie sat with their guitars on their knees. And the four rather cramped travellers set off on the long journey to Manhattan. In fact, the conditions were so cramped and they were all so tired that they ended up splitting the ride and spent the first night in Philadelphia before meeting up with Morris the following day. It is true that a lot of Americans love England. They like its culture, its history, its music and its eccentrics. John was amazed how easily he was accepted by the citizens of New York. On their first night in that city, they went down to a club called Hurrah's, where they would be playing in a few days' time. Some people had actually heard of me, John says. Hurrah's was bringing over a lot of the new English acts, and a lot of the audience read the English music papers. After going to that club, I really thought that cracking the Big Apple was going to be a piece of cake, says John. The first American venue to host an Otway show was the Paradise Club in Boston. John and Ollie were supported by Iggy Pop. It was quite a good bill, as both acts were pretty wild, and the turnout was good. It was also a strong start to that tour, and the duo went down well enough to get an encore. Now we've got Boston under our belts. Let's get New York, Otway said on the long drive back. They were headlining at Tavares. The advance publicity had been organised well, and Otway was nervous enough to put on a pretty wild show. A lot of people turned out to see Ollie. Both Pato and Kevin Ayres, whom Ollie had worked with, had something of a cult following, and anyone who was into guitarists knew Ollie's name. These people were different from those who normally came to see Otway, as they had a taste in music rather than extravagance. They all liked the show. It was something new to the Americans who would say things like, Hey, this guy's really crazy. After the second encore that night, Otway was convinced that if he could make it there, he could make it anywhere. After the first few days of that tour, two major cities had fallen to the small invasion force. The invasion force was to get smaller too. On the way to Philadelphia, Morris mentioned in passing that money could be saved on hotel rooms if John and Kathy shared a twin room with Ollie. That was enough for Kathy, who was at this point crammed in the back with John Morris and the guitars. She took the Greyhound bus down to Texas and spent the duration of that tour with some of Rummins's friends in El Paso. After a few more days on the East Coast, it was up north, across the border and into Canada to play Toronto. The Edge Club there was one of those places ideally suited to the sort of show John and Ollie were doing, both in size and atmosphere. Oddly enough, more people here had heard of Otway than anywhere else. There was even a group of emigres from Aylesbury who turned up to cheer him on. Toronto was to witness Otway's greatest successes in North America. They played several nights and the audience grew with each subsequent performance. 
The longer distances could be flown as cheaply as driven by the trio left on the tour. Having played Detroit and Chicago, they flew the long journey to the West Coast and Vancouver. The dates on the West Coast were supporting the American band Pierubu. We really did well in Vancouver, what we remembers. The show started brilliantly, because I trepped and fell flat on my face as I walked on stage. The audience liked that, and from that point on, I couldn't seem to do anything wrong. Pierubu seemed a little miffed, and the atmosphere was a bit strange in the dressing room in San Francisco a couple of nights later. And it didn't help that we'd flown down and they've had a two-day drive in a van. But it was all to change. The first set that night was hell. Pierubu seemed to be pretty big news in San Francisco and the Frisco crowd appeared to want to get us off stage as quickly as possible. After about the third number, they started yelling things like Get off! and Quit using the phony English accents! Well... Heckling like that always made me go a bit wilder. And in this case, it made the audience go a bit wilder too. The place was selling food and there were all these sachets of tomato ketchup on the tables. The audience discovered that these made really good missiles and that a carefully aimed sachet would explode on impact. Pierubu's lot couldn't believe it as we arrived back in the dressing room during the break. On first sight... It looked as though a mad knifeman had been hacking away at us for the whole of the first set. Anyway, we cleaned ourselves up and put on clean shirts for the second set. The trouble was, as soon as we walked on stage to do it, someone yelled, Oh no, it's them again! And another load of ketchup came flying through the air. So we were back, looking like mad knifeman victims again, before we'd even plugged in the guitars. After that, Pirubi were really nice to us. They even came out to watch some of that show. It is widely believed that people on the west coast of America are more laid back than those on the east. If this is true, then it seems that laid back Americans do not like crazy ungainly loonies. Ollie, whose playing was universally liked, impressed them, but John's mad antics did not go down so well. For example, whilst Ollie was playing a long solo, his head and body bopping around as he entertained those people with his brilliant playing, John would sneak up behind him and pull his guitar lead from his amplifier. People who admired Otway's very odd sense of humour found it hilarious to see Ollie, mid-bop and mid-riff, suddenly silent, with John standing behind him, grinning and holding up a jack plug. People like Ollie, people who admired good playing and laid-back Americans, found it horrible. Always jokes like, this is a song about the American Civil War, it's called Remember the Alamo, and his impersonation of Sammy Davis Jr., consisting of John singing, I see trees of green, red roses too, in a low gravelly voice, did not come across to these Americans as an indication of comic genius. The effect of the invasion force on the west coast of America was probably summed up brilliantly by Otway, who said wryly after one gig, When I wrote the lines, And my dreams will see me playing for the screaming ladies of Los Angeles, Get Off was not what I was dreaming of them screaming. The Otway newsletter, written from that part of the States to his fans back home, tell a much different story. A story about how everybody just loves me over here, and the inevitable 
It really looks as though I'm going to be an international star now. Well, I wanted my letter from America to be optimistic, says John now. And, apart from those dates on the West Coast, I did feel we had almost made it there. John and Ollie played a couple more shows in New York on the way home. It was a good way to end that first trip. They had indeed built up a small reputation. Ian Copeland came and saw one of the shows and was impressed enough to sign Otway to his agency. By the time Otway got on that plane home, he was happy and confident. There were now two places in that huge continent where Otway could genuinely claim that he had the embryo of a cult following. The problem was yet again Otway's faith in his ultimate destiny. He believed that as long as one went down well somewhere, the next time one played, the audience would double, and then keep doubling until the figures were so huge that they did in fact amount to massive fame. This sort of chain letter, or rather chain audience theory, was obviously flawed. But his successes, especially in Toronto and New York, were, he felt, strong enough reason to attempt to put this theory into practice. (laughs) ¶¶ 